Join Dr. Brown as he continues to dig deep into the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ as he walks through the book of Galatians. This is Hearing is Believing. You know, Christians, we have a book, and it's a holy book, and in that book we have a message of God to us. But only do we have a book, we have a word to help us interpret the book. Jesus is the Word of God in flesh appearing. And as the carol says, each Sunday we take our Bibles and we come and adore the Word through taking our Bibles to turn to hear from God. So do you have your Bible here this morning? I encourage you to take it. Hopefully you have it with you here, a copy of God's Word. And take it and join me in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. And in the Bible, we have, listen to these terms, inspired and inerrant words about the eternal Word of the Father. So let me say that again. In the Bible, we have inspired and inerrant words about the eternal Word of the Father. And His coming changes everything. Or we could say His coming changes all things. And we know a little bit about events that have changed history. All of us do. Yesterday, for example, was the 20th anniversary of September the 11th, 2001. Now, what does that mean? 20 years. Here's what that means. It means that we are almost a generation removed from the events that day. And for all of us, the world that was here before 9-11 is a world no more. Because the memory of those Twin Towers and the memory of all the events on that day has forever changed the world. And so when we come to our Bibles, we come with an event that has, listen, definitively changed the course of history. So we come to our Bibles after the cross. We come to our Bibles in light of the events. And we now realize that the events that happened on a hillside one Friday was the plan and purpose of God before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? It means that when God decided to create, He decided to create a world that would mean His Son coming and dying. But the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of God's Word to us is that knowing those things, He still created anyway. So do this. Take your Bible. Hold it in your hand. Hopefully you're very familiar with its contents. Hopefully your Bible, you know, you're very familiar with it. It's comfortable to you. Let me ask you a question. As you hold your Bible in your hand, how can we make sense of the words on the page? How can we interpret the events. What does it all mean as you look at the Bible and you think, my goodness, this is a thousand whatever page book. This is massive. How do we make sense of all that? Well, let me just say this. The key to answering that question, how do you make sense of the Bible, is one word. And it's really a name. Now, hopefully all of us went to small groups this morning. Hopefully all of us went to Sunday school. So we know we're going to have a chance for a Sunday school answer. Are you ready? How do you make sense of the Bible? What's his name? I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. What? How do you make sense of the Bible, people? 
Jesus, right? That's not just a Sunday school answer. It's a genuine answer. Some of you say, well, Jesus. You say, well, of course it's Jesus. But we have to allow the biblical narrative to unfold before we get to Jesus. To which I just simply want to say, we don't get to Jesus eventually. We start with Jesus. And our interpretation of the Bible must be Jesus through and through. You see, there's no reason for us, if we're going to make sense of the Bible, there's no reason for us to act like that we don't have the message of the apostles. There's no reason for us to act like we don't have the Holy Spirit. There's no reason for us to act like that we don't have, the, as Peter says, the prophetic word more sure. In other words, when you're reading your Bible, there's no reason to act like we don't have Jesus. But so many times we do when we read the Bible. Because we think that the Bible is about me, or we think that the Bible is about you. Prime example, for example, you have the story of David and Goliath, and so that's been interpreted as, you know, facing your giants. But you know what that story's about? It's not about you. It's about the promised one who's going to come from Israel, who's going to be the promised one who's going to crush the head of the enemies of Israel. That's what David and Goliath is about. It's not about you facing your giants. It's about the promised seed coming to defeat evil once and for all. Now, of course, the Bible has something to do with us. It has something to do with us. It's part, we fit into the mix somehow, but it's not primarily about us. And so we come to the Bible and we read it thinking that we're the hero, thinking that it's all about us, but it's not. It's not about you. It's all about Jesus. And so there's no reason for us to act as if we don't have Jesus. Let me ask you a question. For those of you who remember, what was the airport like before September the 11th? And let me ask you another question. Can you approach the airport the same way that you did before? And the answer to that, if you've gone through the airport, you know, no. You can't. Why? Because something has changed. Something has happened that has changed the way that we approach the airport. And that's the point that I'm trying to make. As you take your Bibles and you try to make sense of it all, now that Christ has come, we come at the Bible always through Him. So He, he changes the way that we approach the Bible. And so here's what we have today. We have this, and I'm so glad that you're here. We have this opportunity to answer a few questions about how to interpret the Bible. And we do so with Jesus at the center of our interpretation. And let me say this clearly. If Jesus is not the center, then we miss the message of the Bible. And so what I want to do is I want to challenge you to understand Jesus in specific terms. So we're just not saying, you know, Jesus is just the answer where you go into Sunday school and, you know, you sort of, uh, the Sunday school teacher or the whoever the Bible teacher asks this question and, oh, uh, well, Jesus, because you haven't thought through it. No, I'm not asking you to say Jesus just flippantly. I'm asking you to be very specific and not just general. And here's the truth. This is why it matters to be specific. The Galatians, you, you have a copy of the, Paul's letter to uh, the churches in Galatia. And so these Galatians, they were infiltrated with false teaching. And let me ask you this. 
Where did the false teachers get their information? They got their information from the Bible. They came to the Galatians door. They came into the Galatians Sunday school class. And here's what they said. Open your Bible. Here's where they erred. They left Jesus out. Now, let's be honest. Let's be fair to these false teachers. They, they, didn't, uh, they didn't simply leave Jesus out entirely. They just didn't incorporate him fully. They reduced the cross to a secondary position instead of letting the cross be central to their confession. So when we say interpreting the Bible with Jesus at the center, we mean a specific Jesus. Because just as in our day, as was true back in the days of Paul and the apostles after Jesus left the earth through the ascension, uh, we realize that there are many false Jesuses out there. On the college campus, in your university, there's going to be individuals who are going to come to you, and they're going to, uh, they're going to try to introduce you to a Jesus, and uh, their Jesus is not according to the Scriptures. So what are some of the false Jesuses that are out there, just so we're clear? Well, you have, for example, you have the Jesus of Islam. That Jesus is a perfect prophet, but he's not a crucified son. Or you have the uh, Jesus of Mormonism. And that Jesus is not co-equal with the Father. Or you have this Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses, where he is created, but he's not the creator. And then there's this other Jesus that he's, he's sort of harder to find, and he sort of is camouflaged and sneaks into our churches just like this. It's the, uh, it's the uh, religiosity Jesus, or maybe we should call this Jesus the, the Southern Fried Religion Jesus. This is the Jesus of uh, the cultural Jesus. You know, uh, I'm a Christian because mama was a Christian. I'm a Christian because daddy was a Christian. I come to church because, well, if I don't, then mom's going to call and ask me if I did, and I'll have to lie, and I'm just tired of lying about that kind of Jesus. It's a religiosity Jesus. And this Jesus is, he's not sufficient for salvation. And so eternal life is given not by faith alone, but by faith plus. And that plus can be anything. And oftentimes that plus is things that most people say, yeah, that's how you make a good citizen. That's how you give back to society. That's how you are a good human being. You know, you're not lying. You're not a liar. You're, you're not stealing. You're, you're not a thief. You, you don't cheat. You, you do your best to serve Jesus, and, and you hope to go to heaven when you die. There's an old country song that talks about working my, uh, doing my best to get to heaven. And let me just say that, if you're doing your best to get to heaven, you're never going to make it. And so that Jesus comes in, slips into your mind, probably easier than some of these other Jesuses. The only problem, or we should say the major problem with each of these versions of Jesus, listen carefully is he's not a Jesus according to the Scripture. What does that mean? Since he is not according to the Scripture, he is not according 
to divine revelation. And so He is a God that you have erected according to your own imaginations. In other words, He's not real. He's phony. He is impotent. That is, He is powerless, and He cannot save. And so, the Jesus that saves is a Jesus according to the Scriptures. But, but, if these groups all come to our door with their Bible in hand, how can we know who is reading the Bible correctly? <laughs> the answer, are you ready for this? Is Jesus. <laughs> now, I'm not just taking off the thinking cap and being cavalier and thinking, well, of course, it's Jesus. You know, I'm not taking you back to Sunday school, though. I really am. How can you know who is reading the Bible correctly? It's Jesus. That's the answer. But then that begs the next question, which Jesus? Well, it's not the Jesus of your imagination. It's not the Jesus that you've come up with or built in your own minds or this version of Jesus you have because your grandmama told you about Him. It's a Jesus who created. It's a Jesus who became incarnate. It's a Jesus who is the eternal Word of the Father. It's a Jesus who bled and died. It's a Jesus who on the third day rose. It's a Jesus who is coming again. In other words, it's a Jesus according to Scripture. You see, we don't want to come up with or uh, we don't want a Jesus according to our own imaginations. We want a Jesus who is greater than anything that we can imagine. And this is the Jesus that Paul is proclaiming to the Galatians. This is the Jesus that justifies. This is the Jesus. It's only Jesus who saves. And listen to this. It is not faith in Jesus that saves, but a Jesus who saves through faith. Let me say that again. It's not faith in Jesus that saves, but a Jesus who saves through faith. And so here's what we're going to do. We've got this wonderful opportunity together to dig deep into what God's Word says and understand what God's Word said. So we're going to focus our attention today on Galatians 3, verse 15 through 29. I'm going to read the whole passage. And then what I want to do is I want to give you three truths to help you understand the message of the Bible. I'm going to read the passage and then give you three truths to help us understand the message of the Bible. Three truths that you can lay over the Bible will help you when it comes time for you to read the Bible and interpret it. So let's read the Bible. Paul says in Galatians 3.15, or I should say more specific, the word of our Lord through the Apostle Paul. To give a human example, brethren, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. That's what I mean. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make a promise or the promise void. 
For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned under the coming faith, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. If you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So three truths from this passage that teach us how to interpret the Bible. Number one, if we're going to interpret the Bible, here's what we have to learn first. In the Bible, promise pervades. In the Bible, promise pervades. And so to make this point clear, or to make the point clear that Paul is preaching a Christ according to the Scripture, look what he does. He goes back and he uses Scripture. In order to show that this Christ is a Christ who justifies by faith alone, he takes the Galatians to the Scripture. He takes them to the Old Testament, or as a friend of mine says, the Older Testament. And from the Old Testament, he preaches Christ. Now, Paul's going to return to this a little later in chapter 4, especially in verse 21. But here, he looks at the Bible and he demonstrates the promise came before the law was given. The promise of God came before the law was given. Look down at chapter 3 and verse 29. Chapter 3 and verse 29 is a summary of this entire section. But also notice the emphasis of chapter, uh, chapter 3 and verse 29. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to what? According to promise. But look again, the section starts with promise, verse 16. Now the what? Promises were made to Abraham. Promise pervades this section of Galatians, as well as promise pervades the entire Bible. And so what does Paul do? He talks about Abraham. He's already talked about Abraham earlier. He did this in uh, chapter 3 in verse, uh, uh, he began talking about Abraham in, in, well, in the beginning of chapter 3. But he takes us back to 
Genesis. That's where we find this character named Genesis. Excuse me, this character named Abraham. He's not named Genesis. He's in Genesis. We find him in Genesis. But Abraham comes in Genesis chapter 12. Now, what does that mean? It means that there are 11 other chapters, right? This is simple stuff. 11 other chapters before Genesis chapter 12. What do we learn about Genesis that leads up to the promise? Well, in Genesis, we have a promise. After rebellion, after the fall, God promised that a Savior would come from the seed of a woman. In other words, one born from woman would save. Now, there's someone left out of that picture, and the one left out of that picture is Adam. Adam's left out of that picture, even though he is uh, uh, Eve's husband. Adam is left out of that picture in the promise, letting us know that salvation is not going to come through the work of man. This is, by the way, why Jesus is born of a virgin, to demonstrate and to highlight the fact that salvation didn't come through the work of man. It never could, it never did, and it never will. Now, for those of you who know the Bible, who is Eve's son? Well, that's the question that we're asking in the whole time of the Bible. Well, who is Eve's son? Well, she has two sons, right? Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. Cain is then banished. But the story doesn't stop there. Adam and Eve had another son. His name was Seth. And that son, Seth, died. So he's obviously not the son of promise, because the son of promise wouldn't stay dead. Otherwise, how can he reverse the curse of death? And so the narrative continues. We have another major figure. We have this man named Enoch, who doesn't die, but he, he just leaves. And then the story continues. Then comes Noah and the ark. And after Noah and the ark comes Abraham. And Abraham received a promise. But Paul, what he does is he points out the promise made to Abraham is the same promise that was made to Eve back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And notice how specific the promise is. Again, don't be general this morning. Be very specific. The promise is for, look at the text, offspring, singular, not offsprings, plural. So the question that Paul asks, who is the promise referring to? Who is the one through whom all the nations will be blessed? Who, in the language of Galatians chapter 6 and verse 16, who is the Israel of God? Who is the one who will give Abraham descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky? Who is it? As Agur, son of Jacketh, says in Proverbs chapter 30, Proverbs chapter 30, listen to this riddle. You're going to be able to answer the riddle, and we're going to all do it together, so pay attention. Here's Proverbs 30. Who has ascended to the heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? who has established all the ends of the earth. What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. So church, what is his name? Say it a little louder. 
Jesus is his name. And so to understand the Bible first, we have to see that the promise of God permeates every page. Now, again, we're being specific. We're not being general. We're not talking about the promises. We're talking about the promise. And the promise pervades every page of Scripture. Scripture is about Jesus. We're looking for this seed who's going to be born of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. He is the one who, even though he crushes the head, he has his heel bruised. This is the one that we're looking for, the one who is wounded, who in that wounding crushed the serpent, who in that wounding brought healing to the world. This is the one that we're looking for. And so the promise, every page, the promise pervades. But if, if that's true, then why on earth did God give the law? Have you ever held the Bible in your hand? And just for example, I couldn't do this the first service. I'll come close. Oh, here we go. Look at, nope, I'll flip to Malachi again. Have you ever noticed that? Look at, look at the distance. You've got all this thing called the Old Testament, and then you've got this section that's the New let me get back to Galatians. There we go. So if you have this, if you have all of this promise that's purveyed, then why did God give the law? And I want to say that if you're asking that, that's a great question. But look at verse 19. We've got the answer right there. Why the law? Look at it. Because of transgressions. That is, there was something that humanity needed to spotlight our need for a Savior. There was something that we needed to show us that we needed a Savior. The law held us captive until the proper time when the promise would come. So look, for example, look at chapter 3 and look at verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? No. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed by, be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to who? To those who believe. Number two, in order to understand the Bible, not only do we have to see the promise that pervades, we also have to see that the law enslaves. What's the purpose of the law? to hold us captive. The law was given to highlight the depth of our fall. You know, if we had time this morning, we would go to Deuteronomy, and we would look at the end of Deuteronomy. And even at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses, he's saying, this is what's going to happen when you don't obey. You're thinking, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And all of that just to tell us that we're not going to be able to obey? But that's what, exactly what Moses does. He says, you're not going to be able to obey. And so here's the curses that you can expect. Have you ever told your children to do something and you knew that they wasn't going to do it, but you told them to do it anyway? Why did you tell them? Because your word stands regardless of how it's received. And the same is true for our relating to God. And here's how we relate to God. He created us. He calls us to walk with Him. 
We are incapable of walking with God because of the hardness of our own hearts. That's the Bible calls transgressions. The standard that God has is moral perfection. And here's the kicker. It's not even enough for you to do the right things because you serve this God who knows the secret intentions of your heart. So God doesn't just want you to do the right things. He wants you to want to do the right things. And that's the challenge that I have as a parent as I'm instructing my children. Yes, I definitely want them to pick this up or put that away or do this or don't do that. But you know what's more important than them doing that? It's them wanting to do that. Now, what's easier for me to tell my children, pick it up, that's usually how I say it, or something to the effect of, you know, Daddy, I sure would love to bless you, and I'm going to go do exactly what you want me to do. That's what I want. That's what every parent wants. College students, I remember when I was in school, uh, I quit calling my mama, and uh, my mother cut me off from any finances. So listen, don't stop calling your mama, right? What was she trying to do? She was trying to capture my heart. It's not enough for you to do the right thing. God wants you to want to do the right thing. So if that's the case, then if God knows the secret intentions of your heart, then you're in a mess. You need a Savior. And that's the purpose of the law to show you that you need a Savior. So even the law, when it was given, was given with an expectation of a promised salvation. Even the law, when it was given, was given with the promise of an expectation of salvation. Abraham told his son Isaac in Genesis 22 that God would provide a lamb. But read the text closely. Go back to Genesis 22 in your mind, or maybe later, and you'll understand that God didn't provide a lamb that day with Isaac. Read the text closely. What did he provide? It wasn't a lamb. It was a ram with promise. The sacrifices and offerings in the Old Testament are acts of faith, not in the things, but what the things signify that God would save, that God would provide. This lamb is not going to—Abraham says God's going to provide a lamb. He doesn't. He provides a ram. That ram stands in the place of his son. And so the sacrificial system has its roots there. But all the roots are in the promise of God. God would save. God would provide. And so those sacrifices and offerings were the people placing their faith in the promise. And those people in the Old Testament, they, they might not have understood all the promise entailed, but that wasn't as important as believing the promise. And I may be talking to some Christians here today who are young in their faith, who are tender in their faith, and you say, I don't understand the Bible. I don't understand all of these things. And I just want to encourage you today to say, you don't have to. You don't have to understand at all, the only important part for you is to say, I believe the promise of God. John tells this story of a man who was born blind, and Jesus heals him, and he's standing before the, the high courts, and they're asking him all of these questions, all of these questions about Jesus, and the blind man just simply says, I don't know about all of those things. 
But here's what I do know. I once was blind, and now I see. Oh, beloved, you don't have to understand all the finer details, and some of you get so hung up on trying to understand all the finer details finer details. I'm here today to liberate you from that, to let you know that those Old Testament people that are saved by grace and faith looking ahead to the promise, they might not have understood all that the promise entailed, but that wasn't as important as them believing that God had promised. And so the proper way to read the Old Testament is through the lens of promise. Listen, not to do better, but to believe the promise. That's the important way for you to understand what we do here every week. It's not a do better sermon. It's not a do this, don't do that. It's a believe the promise. Believe the promise. By faith receive. Believe. And everything else will take care of itself. The law was given in the words of chapter 3 and verse 24 to lead us to Christ. That's why the law was given, to lead us to Christ. In other words, the law has an end. The law has a destination. The law has a terminus, and His name is Jesus, who doesn't just end the law as if it's over. He fulfills it because the law of God stands forever. Now, you can either stand in the way of the law of God and be overrun, or you can stand with Jesus and be in Christ, saved forever. So this is why, for example, Paul says to the Galatians in chapter 3 and verse 1, have you lost your minds? Who has bewitched you? You're acting like the law didn't happen. You're acting like the cross hasn't happened. Are you crazy? Did you forget what happened at Calvary? Now, this is why he says in chapter 5 and verse 1, why would you, after being freed, from the guardian of chapter 3 and verse 24, the tutor, why would you submit again to a yoke of slavery? The Old Testament is about promise, and the promise is number three, Jesus saves. Promise pervades, the law enslaves, Jesus saves. Jesus saving is the best news in the world. As an old Plymouth Plymouth brethren, Andrew Jukes used to say, Satan would have us prove ourselves holy by the law, which God gave us to prove, which God gave to prove us sinners. Look at verse 25. Now that faith has come, now the anticipation has come. Now your faith has a resting place. Now your faith has an object. It's not in good deeds. It's not in what you can do. It's not in what you can do. It's not in what you might do. It's in what Jesus has done. Now that faith has come. And you talk about the mystery of God. How about this for the mystery of God? This blows my mind. Why were you born when you were born on this side of the cross? Have you ever thought about that? I don't know the answer, but God knows. Why did God send the Son 
when He sent the Son? Why not later? Why not sooner? To all of those questions, I just want to say, that's none of your business. That's none of my concern. As much as we want to wrangle over these things and try, un, try to understand it, that's none of your business. It's not your concern. You say, well, what is my concern? What is my business? Chapter 3 and verse 1, to look to the Son and live. And chapter 3 and verse 27, to put on Christ. That's your concern, to look upon Him and live, and then to put on Christ. You see, through the death of Jesus, we are not only justified, we are united to Christ. We have not only received something from Christ, justification, pardon, mercy, grace. We've not only received something from Christ, we have received Christ Himself. Salvation is not simply receiving something from Christ. Salvation is receiving Christ Himself. And He not only gives us His righteousness, He Himself is our righteousness. You say, is there some kind of, is there some kind of symbol? Is there something that we can do to, to nail things down, to show us what has happened on the inside? Is there some kind of symbol to demonstrate that we're united with Christ? And the Baptist preacher says, oh, yes, there sure is. You say, what is it? It's baptism. It's baptism. Baptism is the moment we show the world what's happened on the inside. It's the moment that we show that we've been united with Christ. Look at this. We put on Christ by putting on the water. We put on the water as a symbol that we have been united with Christ. And because we are united with Christ, we are justified, and because we are justified, we are in the right with God. We're never in the right with God because of ourselves, but we're always in the right with God. Listen to that word again from the preacher, from the Word. We are always in the right with God because Jesus is always in the right with God. And if you believe in Him, you are in Him. So God looks at you, and He says, that is my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. You say, well, you don't understand what I just got done doing or did the other day. Do you believe in Jesus? Then you are in Christ. And God looks at you, and He says, no condemnation. He, she are in Christ. And this is for everyone who believes. Ladies and gentlemen, you must believe. Slaves and free, no matter your social status, you must believe. Jew and Greek, no matter your ethnicity, you must 
believe. And so my question to, to you today is rather simple. Do you believe? Do you believe? It's not a question that I can answer for you. It's not a question that you can go back and point to something and say, yeah, I believed then. I'm not asking you if you believed then. I'm asking you, do you believe? You are invited today to stand on the promises of God, the promise of salvation through Jesus, the Son. How do you read the Bible? Read it with the promise on every page, realizing that the law enslaves. Jesus is the one who saves. And it's this Jesus, according to the Scriptures, that I present to you to look upon Him and live, to receive Him by faith. Jesus saves sinners. You know what we call that? My friends, that's the gospel. It's good news for you today. And it's my prayer that everyone within the sound of my voice would believe Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, may it be true of everyone here today, may they say in the quietness of their hearts, I believe. Father, for some that may be for the first time they've said that, you've shown them today that they've believed in their good deeds, their works, their this, their that, even the good things, but they've not believed in Christ alone. Today is their day of salvation. Father, for others, for others, Lord God, who realize that they've not been baptized. They want to join our church and get connected to believers who are going to help them think and delve deep into the gospel. May today be the day of decision for them as well. Have your way in our hearts. Thank you for giving us Jesus. In his name we pray. And all of God's people said, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Dr. Andy Brown, Senior Pastor of First Baptist Startville in Startville, Mississippi. If you enjoyed what you heard, make sure to follow Hearing is Believing on Facebook and rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also find us at hearingisbelieving.org.